Oh, hey there, party people. Guess what? Grown Up is back. And listen, I know what you've been thinking, all 100 of you that are avid Grown Up listeners. Did COVID-19 end this podcast? Well, that question should already be answered because this is my first new episode since March, a month that in this house we now call when the train stopped at the great self-isolation station. I have spent months chasing a toddler, and don't get me wrong, I'm still chasing a toddler, but I decided to pull myself out of the showerless, Play-Doh-filled, mom-bun-proud cave I've been hibernating in to reinstate naptime Zoom interviews and midnight editing sessions for a whole new world of grown-up podcast episodes just for you. And damn, does it feel good. So let's get started, shall we? I remember growing up, all I wanted was to be a grown-up, now I'm grown-up. Today, I have a grown-up for you that's living and breathing that Hollywood dream and helping others do the same along the way. I'll tell you right now that especially in this time of pandemic, the glitz and glam of Hollywood feels very far from where I am, but the passion that success coach Erica Wernick exuded while we chatted about her LA-based business made me feel like I was right there in the thick of it with her. In her early 20s, Erica set off from a suburb of Philadelphia for the bright lights of L.A. with the hope of making it in television and film. But her story is a little bit different than the one you've seen in the 9,000 different Get Famous or Die Trying movies because Erica moved to Hollywood to make it big in graphic design. And she did just that. She moved to Hollywood with zero connections and worked her way up to 40-plus credits and a coveted spot in the Television Academy. You know, the people who vote on the Emmys. Fancy, right? She's worked on shows like Glee, Superstore, Entourage, and The Office. And despite all that, she shifted her business into helping others achieve their Hollywood dreams. As a coach, she's not just coaching actors. She's also coaching crew members to help them build their confidence and book the gigs of their dreams. One of Erica's clients booked a recurring role on This Is Us. Another became an assistant to an A-lister. A production assistant she coached booked consistent gigs for a full year on shows like How to Get Away with Murder, Big Little Lies, and Veronica Mars. Okay, I included that last one just so I could say the words Veronica Mars on this podcast so I could deliver the following plug. Veronica Mars, it's my favorite show ever. Please go watch it and send me a message. Back to Erica. Here she is. My name is Erica Wernick, and I am Hollywood's leading success coach. Yes, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an artist and or a teacher. I help artists in Hollywood basically achieve all of their Hollywood dreams and live out their greatest potential. About 80% of my clients are actors, but I work with everybody in the industry. I work with writers, directors, editors, music supervisors, singers. I mean, it really spans the gamut. My coaching is one-on-one and in groups. And so mostly I'm helping people through their limiting beliefs and all of the stuff that's coming up that's blocking them from really getting to where they want to be. The 
best part for me is watching other people feel fulfilled and achieve their dreams. I mean, it literally makes me cry. And now, before we get into my interview with Erica, a 30-second history of the job. Now, this one was hard because there's not really any clear lineage that goes right to Hollywood success coach, but here goes. The first time we see the use of the term coach in connection with an instructor or trainer comes in 1830 as Oxford University slang for a tutor who, quote, carried a student through an exam. The word coaching signaled a process used to transport people from where they are to where they want to be. And while coaches in sports have a long and recorded history, with the term coaching applied to sports for the first time in, like, 1861, the history of business coaches hasn't quite been studied at length. Some attribute the modern practice of coaching someone on their, quote, inner game to nationally ranked tennis player Tim Galway, who in 1974 published his first book, The Inner Game, which sold two million copies and encouraged readers to quiet self-interference to tap into their natural abilities with greater ease. Most information about executive coaching points to a rise in the practice in the late 1980s and early 1990s as big businesses rushed to keep a competitive edge by hiring coaches for their top executives, especially while trying to pull out of poor economic times. And since then, the idea of mentoring for money has skyrocketed with the rise of self-help books, motivational speakers, and inner work workshops. And that brings us to today, where niche coaches with an interest in helping others achieve the success they've seen themselves have popped up in almost every industry. And that's why I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Hollywood success coach Erica Wernick about why someone would move across the country with no job lined up, how to survive months of not working by watching friends, and why the term coaching can be so triggering for so many people. Uh, man, it's so weird because I feel like, and maybe you can, you can tell me if this is a normal thing, but growing up, I mean, I live in Canada, so I feel like LA already, it seems so far away from me. Um, but I have this idea probably from movies about what LA is like. And I went there a few years ago and granted, I was traveling with like a three month old, so it wasn't <laughs> great. But you have this really like glamorous idea of what LA is. And then you get there and you realize it's actually like just a city. Um, and it's not all palm trees and glitter and stuff. Did you have that same sense when you got to LA or had you been there enough that you knew? Yes. I actually think it's so funny because I did an intensive acting program at UCLA in Los Angeles when I was in high school. And I was enamored with LA. Like I was so obsessed with it and I thought it was so glamorous even after I got here. But that program, you know, we were young, we were in high school, we were only allowed within a certain block radius by ourselves. So I saw like this teeny, teeny, tiny corner of LA and thought it was like the most glamorous, you know, like it's like I, if I went a couple blocks to the East, it would have looked a little different. So I was in that bubble for a while thinking that it looks so glamorous, but I will say I mean, like, Hollywood is not glamorous at all. I mean, there's lots of pockets that are not glamorous. But I still feel the, oh, my gosh, California is so amazing. I mean, I've been here 12 years, and I still feel that. I mean, just driving down to the ocean or seeing the mountains, I mean, to me, it still feels magical. 
So tell me about, okay, so you grew up in Philadelphia. You dream of kind of being a teacher. I mean, what did your parents do? Did that have any bearing on what you decided in your head you wanted to do when you grew up? That's a really good question because my mom was a teacher, but I feel like I didn't, I didn't necessarily get it from my mom because I think I'm so visual. Like I got it from what I could see and I didn't necessarily see my mom being a teacher. You know what I mean? Like I didn't see her at work until I was much older. She was actually my substitute teacher in sixth grade for a minute. Yeah, that was interesting, but I didn't see it. So I, I think it was more about seeing my own teachers, like seeing whatever was sort of right in front of me. And what was attractive about that to you? Um, yeah, what was? I mean, when I was young, I think I just saw I, – I loved my teachers. And, like, to this day, I'm, like, one of those annoying, brown-nosing, oh, my gosh, make her shut up. Like, I love teachers. And I'm still very close with my teachers from when I was 12 years old. I still – talk to those teachers. So I think I really loved the relationship and I loved the teaching part of it. Like, I mean, I feel like even to this day, you know, I, I, I enjoyed watching them teach something and us learning it. And then the relationship and the mentorship and the connection. Um, I think it felt, I feel like the word community keeps coming up for me. It felt like community. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, we'll try and connect that to what you do now. It's funny when you ask people why they wanted to be something when they grew up. Very often when I'm talking to people, it it's exactly what they like about what they're doing now. Yes. I mean, I, when you first ask, like, it is crazy to think that I'm basically doing both of those things right now. When do you start to decide your that arts, like going into arts and entertainment is where you're actually heading? Um, I mean, I was started drawing at a very young age. And my mom also would draw a little bit. Um, And I remember, too, when I was in about first grade, maybe, there was a girl in my class who was a very good artist, and I think her parents were artists, and she would teach me how to draw things, and I loved it. So we have a painting in my house that's hanging on the wall that I did in fifth grade. So the, the actual, like, art started in elementary school, Um, And then I didn't start into, like, the performing arts until a little later. Actually, I did my first play when I was in fourth grade, but but more towards middle school and high school. So you end up going to arts college. And do you go to art college for graduate design? Sorry, graphic design? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I went to – I actually went to a different university first. I went to Penn State, and then I transferred in the middle of my junior year because I ended up not loving their graphic design program. Um, And so I transferred to an art school that was more specific. Like, it was just more in-depth in graphic design. Um, And so, yeah, I did that in college. Is graphic design kind of like bringing out the drawing into kind of a digital form? Or, you know, how do you decide that graphic design is the thing? Like how does, how does, you know, I I don't think a lot of kids really know what graphic design is. Like when you get out of high school, how do you end up with graphic design? How does, how do you make that decision? I think, you know, it's really interesting because graphic design is different from art in a way that I, that feels really good to me in the sense of like art, you're given a blank canvas and you can paint whatever you want. Graphic design, you're given parameters 
And so it's not starting with the, I mean, you're sort of starting with the blank canvas, but you're given parameters, you know, it's because um, graphic design is really like art that communicates something for, you know, a brand or whatever. And so um, I really like that. Like I struggle with the blank canvas thing, but um, I will say that in the beginning, I was very drawn to advertising and I can't remember exactly why I was drawn to advertising. Like, I don't really remember where that exactly started. But when I first went to Penn State, I was trying to be an advertising major. I didn't know the graphic design was something different. It's funny because I really didn't have a ton of understanding of what graphic design was or like, honestly, how hard it was. Like, to, in my, I think in my mind, even as a journalist, I kind of knew what graphic design was. And I was like, oh, like, it's like just art on a screen. Um, and then after I left journalism, I worked for a very short time in a marketing agency and my job was basically to like bring, uh, the kind of creative brand decisions to the graphic designers and, and then back, like I was kind of that liaison, like graphic design is so hard. I don't know if I just don't have, like, I can do a little bit of it, but people who do really good graphic design, I'm just like, so in awe of, because I just, I just, especially on a computer, don't know if I could go from blank screen to like almost like taking someone else's vision and making it look beautiful. Like that's so confusing to me. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just want to say thank you. It's very nice when someone recognizes that what you do, you know, has value and is, is diff is challenging. Um, I could say the same for journalism. You know, I feel like all, all of our crafts and everything that we do has its own challenges. Graphic design is definitely a lot harder than I thought going into it. Um, but I love, I, I, I loved every bit. Like even as I learned the stuff that was more challenging, I was just so fascinated by it. Like, I mean, we, I have this joke with my friend of one of the times when I realized I want to be a graphic designer in high school, I was designing, I was the secretary of our drama club and I had to design our newsletter and my friend who did it with me, she was like, Erica, you have spent like 30 minutes trying to pick out a font. Can we move on? <laughs> and I was like, but I love fonts. They're so great. You know, like I was so obsessed with, with typography and I just, yeah, it was like insane. Okay, so that leads me like directly into deciding to move to Hollywood because graphic design in movies is honestly, until I was reading your bio, not even something that occurred to me. Product placement in movies, I see. Graphic design, I don't, I can't remember something in graphic design that I've seen. And now, I mean, just like Bader-Meinhof syndrome, I'm gonna like see all the graphic design forever. Tell me about this decision. So I don't think it's a, it's a, the first thing that comes to mind when you say like, I'm a graphic designer from Philadelphia, that that would even translate like into Hollywood. I think a lot of us think, you know, people moving to Hollywood, they're all actors. So can you tell me about that decision? Like, when does that decision come that it's, it's something that you know you can make work in Hollywood or that you hope you can make work in Hollywood? Well, I grew up, I would say like high school, I was heavily involved in theater and I was an actor and I was also a singer. I was president of our chorus. I was, like I said, secretary of the drama club. And so that was my life. Like my life was acting and um, I have this really sob story about recognizing that I wasn't good enough to pursue it in college, but I like, I do believe I was meant to pursue graphic design like that. I really feel like that's where I was supposed to go, but I always had a fascination with Hollywood and 
you know, like, um, because I think too, like when I gr- was grew up acting, I would have wanted to be in TV and film rather than, I mean, Broadway would have been really cool, but I just had this fascination with television and film. And so it felt like a really good way to bridge the two interests of mine. And one day when I was watching the movie 13 going on 30, have you ever seen that movie? Oh, billions of times. Okay. Well, the scene where they're eating razzles, the candy. I didn't yeah. know like I didn't know that that was a real candy. I later found out razzles are real candy. <laughs> and in movies, it's a long story, but like basically in movies you can have real products and in TV it's different because of commercials. And it's um a conflict of interest if you have a brand that conflicts with a brand that's shown in a commercial. Wow, I never would have known that. I know, I know. It's it's a crazy world. But so like I didn't know any of this and I just thought Razzles was fake and I immediately go, "Oh my gosh, a graphic designer had to design that box of candy." And it just like dawned on me. It was a light bulb moment and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I want to do that." Um and so that's that's the decision. That was the decision to go to Hollywood. And I knew that I was an LA person because my very first interview outside of like the week or the day before I was graduating was in New York. And it was for a company that designed Broadway posters, which also seems like a good merge of my interests. But when I was lugging my portfolio around like the streets of New York, it was just an energy. And I just felt like this is not where I want to live. I think New York is amazing, but I don't fit there to live. Like, it's just not me. Like I knew I wanted to be in LA. So how old are you when you decide LA is your LA bound, if you will. I know that's my old business. Um, <laughs> I was 24. And so when you start to tell people you're going to move to LA, because you moved to LA without a job lined up, right? Which I guess most people in LA do, but I think it's so probably foreign to people who aren't from that world that you would move somewhere without a job lined up. Is that scary for you? Or is that scary for your family when you're saying, here's, here's the plan? Oh yeah, it was terrifying. Terrifying. And In my old business, LA Bound, I mean, this is something I talk about a lot. Excuse me. Like if you want to work in Hollywood, you have to move here without a job because people will wait until they get a job. But the thing is, in Hollywood, there's a million people who are already in LA who will take the job. (laughs) And so they're not going to hire someone out of state or out of the country, you know, for something that they can easily get someone from LA. So like being here is so important. And, um, it was terrifying and it's weird to look back like because it was very terrifying and I it didn't really hit me how scary it was until I landed like until my flight landed in Los Angeles and I was by myself getting off that plane um but I had this inner knowing that this is what I was supposed to do wow lucky you I feel like a lot of 24 year olds don't have um, much inner knowing. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, and I don't know if I would have called it that then, but looking back, because it is terrifying, you know, I, like, I don't know, like the balls to do that. I mean, a lot of people do it. It's not like I'm the only person, but I really believe like that was the thing that, because I always tell the story right before I moved, the week before I moved, I got an eye disease and it was really painful in the beginning. And my parents were like, well, why don't you delay your flight, you know, like a month or something and we can get this figured out. And I was like, no, I'll get an eye doctor in LA. 
And I did. I had, again, a specialist in LA that I still see 12 years later because it's a disease that's basically always going to be with me. Um, and it, it, it like made everything more scary because I had to be on like these strong steroid pills at the time. So like I was already terrified and emotional being here. And then on top of that, I'm taking this like high dosage of these steroid pill. Like it was just, you know, yeah, it was a lot. I feel like that's something that happens. Like my husband always joke, everything always happens at the same time. Like, of course, right before you go to LA is when you get an eye disease. That's just, I feel like that's just how life works. Yeah, I mean, right? when, like with my LA Bound audience, I tell them like, I call it like the the universe's final exam. And essentially it's something's going to come up to pull you back into your comfort zone and keep you where you are. And so like always, and because if, if it doesn't have to be something as drastic as an eye disease, it could be like your friend's bridal shower or, you know, a family event, you know, it, it can be anything like that where you're like, oh, well, I'll go after that. Oh, well, I'll go after, you know, like things like that will always come up. And to me, it's the universe being like, okay, do you want this new scary thing? And are you going to do it? If not, I've got all these shiny things I can offer you that will keep you safe and keep you where you are. I think that's so true. And I think, I think a lot of people end up in a career where they look back and they can recognize those things like, oh yeah, that's the thing where I could have just gone and done it, but I let it, I let it hold me. Right. I think for a lot of people, that thing with moving to Hollywood is how the things that people say about Hollywood. Right. And actually I took like a deep dive into your podcast, which is called the Hollywood success podcast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I was listening to an episode from 2016 where you were talking about stories. I, I really thought one of the things you said in that podcast was really interesting. And it is kind of what you, what people would say, which is, oh, you're going to move to Hollywood. You're going to make no money. You're going to live in your car. You're going to be back in two months. Is that something you heard a lot from people in Philadelphia when you start saying, I'm moving to Hollywood. I'm going to be a graphic designer in Hollywood. You know, it's interesting because my parents are very, very supportive. So I didn't really get a lot of that. I mean, like my clients have gotten a lot of that. And I hear so many stereotypes. Coincidentally, or ironically, I heard the opposite. Like there was this one funny story of this girl. I remember her saying to me, oh, my gosh, you're moving to L.A. Your life is going to be just like the hills. <laughs> And I, I always want to tell that. Story. I'm like, I'm like crafting this keynote speech for my speaking business. And I want to tell that story because it's just so funny, the juxtaposition of like the, the reality TV show of The Hills yeah. and what my life was really like in LA. This person's imagining you like living with your rich parents in Orange Yeah, County. like I'm not the Kardashians, <laughs> okay? Like I'm Erica. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what is the reality of moving to LA? What is, what does that look like when you first get there? You don't have a job, but like, where are you living? And you know, are you surviving? I was on the couch of my sister's friend's sister. I had never met her before. So she was so generous to let me even stay there. And I mean, it was, you know, I will say like, I, there's a lot of struggle in the beginning. I think there's a lot of struggle throughout. There's a lot of obstacles, but the beginning is rough. And sometimes I like to tell people that to let them know they're not alone. Like, it's okay if it's not super easy. You know, the transition is I had made connections before I moved. Um, I was very strategic. Like, I just cold emailed a whole bunch of people. One person was like, sure, I'll look at your portfolio. I went to LA a month before I was moving 
and met him and showed him my portfolio. And he was young and we became friendly and he was super cool. And he was like very like brotherly, like wanting to show me around and like introduce me to his friends. He was so nice. And he liked my work and thought my work was good. And so when I got to LA, I was like, I'm here, I'm ready to work. And so he gave, he was working on a pilot and he gave me like a test assignment, essentially like a logo for this TV show that he was working on. And in my sister's friend's sister's apartment, she was stealing internet. So she couldn't afford her own internet and was like stealing it from her neighbor. And I had to send files and communicate like, you know, with the, the like this guy on a TV show for the very first time with stolen internet that was like so shoddy and only worked after 3 p.m. or, you know, and I had and I didn't have a laptop. I had like a huge iMac because I'm graphic designer. And so I have the huge IMAX on the floor. And it was just, it was very messy. <laughs> so you get the job on the pilot. Is that how it goes? I, I designed something and it was, it was like a test. He was like testing me and he paid me for it. He did pay me a little bit of money for it. It was super sweet of him. Um, and I kind of passed the test or whatever. And so he was willing to recommend me. So two weeks later, he recommended me for a show that came his way that he couldn't take. And I interviewed for that show and booked that show. Do you remember what that show was called? It was called Trust Me. And it was a pilot that only kind of ended up going a few ep- few episodes, 12 episodes? One season, and it was 12 episodes. Um, Eric McCormick was a star. I don't know Ooh. if you know him. He's Canadian. He's Canadian. Yeah, I know him. He's Will and Grace. Yes, exactly. And actually, one of my graphics I had to do on that show was design maple leaf uh tickets like for hockey oh like for the hockey team (laughs) yeah because it was because it was eric mccormick and tom cavanaugh oh nice and i think he's also from canada so they had written to the script that they were doing some hockey game and had to do these tickets and since they were from canada they wanted me to design like for a canadian team and yeah i don't want to say you're lucky because i hate when people say that because Lucky just says to other people like, oh, you did nothing. It just happened to you. Um, You get hired on this show. And what happens? Is it everything that you thought it would be? Is it what you were hoping that your first job in LA would be? I mean, how does, I mean, obviously it doesn't last too, too long because it's one season. But I mean, is it scary? Is it cool? Is it, um, you know, long days? What's it like? The beginning I just wrote about it in my book, so it's very fresh in my mind. The beginning, it really was everything I had hoped for. I mean, it it was so magical. And it's interesting because it was on a smaller lot. It's actually called The Lot. um, And it's in West Hollywood. And it's very small. Like, there's only, like, three or four sound stages. So it's not like Warner Brothers or Sony. It's not like a big lot. So I feel like I had this, like, transition into Hollywood. And the TV show was about an advertising agency. So the set was like cubicles and like a layout board. Like I was, you know, it was like I was coming from graphic design school into like a graphic design TV show. I mean, it was so kismet the the way that transition, you know, like I was so I, I just loved it so much. And I was working for the prop masters, which is usually the full time graphic designer on the shows for the art department, not prop. But I was working for the prop masters, which means I designed any graphic that an actor touched. So like tickets, right? So like these tickets. And so that meant I got to like cut things out and make things and everything I did in school. I was like, you know, by hand embossing a business card and they were so impressed. And I'm like, well, we do this shit in school all the time. So 
it was very magical in the beginning. Um, but then I was not in the union. I didn't even know what a union was. I was so green. I didn't know how the industry worked. And the art department was like, what is this girl like getting her own office, being this graphic designer full time? And she's not in the union. That's not allowed. And so one day these people came into my office and were like, you need to pack up your things and leave. And I had no, like, I didn't understand. I had no idea what was going on. I like went to the bathroom and cried my eyes out. Um, And then I found out like I'm not in the union and I'm not allowed to be there. And so my bosses ended up fighting for me. And two days later, I got to come back and finish the show. Okay, interesting. Okay, so that show. So at some point in this, like when you're working there, do you get off the sister's friend's sister's couch? Or you, so you get your own apartment or do you have roommates? What's what's kind of the step up from sister's friend's sister's couch? Yes. Um, yes, I was able to get an apartment. And it did help that I started making money relatively quickly. And because I was being invoiced, you know... It, I, you know, I didn't have to pay taxes up front. Like, so I had some cash flow, which was very helpful. So I found a roommate on Craigslist and I, I feel like we might've like, I mean, this was 12 years ago, so we weren't FaceTiming, but I feel like we Skyped. Like, I think that there was video chat that happened because I, she wasn't in LA yet. She was moving from Boston and she had gotten an internship at the Ellen show. So she wanted to be like near there. Um, so we ended up getting an apartment on a six-month lease because her her internship was only six months, um, and we got an apartment near there. And I assume what happens is that the sh- the pilot show doesn't get picked up for a second season. Correct. And what's that like for you? I mean, it, was that what you were expecting? Was there kind? Of, I mean, when that happens, does everyone on the show kind of know ahead of time that we're not getting? You know, it's probably not going to get picked up, or is it kind of a really sudden decision? Um. I think like sometimes you can tell, like you can kind of tell what the networks is going to do. And, um, but I was so new to the industry, you know, like a show getting canceled. I mean, it always sucks because there goes your job, but it's common, you know, it's common in the industry, but that was my first show and I was brand new to this industry. And so it was really devastating to me. Um, you know, I, it was such a magical experience. And like, you know, Eric McCourt, like to work with a celebrity on my very first show. And because it was such a small lot, like we got to know them, like Tom Cavanaugh, I would design cards for Tom Cavanaugh's wife for like birthdays and holidays. And he'd be like, Erica, forgot to get my wife a a Valentine's Day card. Can you design me one? I was like, sure, you got it. Um, Like I just, it was such a magical experience. It was so, so great. And so when that didn't have, like when that was like taken away, I, it was really hard for me in terms of like, what do I do now? Like not as much, not as like, it's so upsetting because I lost this specific thing, but because of like, I don't know what to do now. And the crew that worked on that show also worked on Entourage. So almost all of them just went back to Entourage and didn't lose anything. And I was like, oh, well maybe I'll get to go back with them. But they, Entourage had been running for like seven or eight seasons. And so they already had established graphics people. So I got to do like a few things here and there, like an episode or two, but not, I like not full time. And so I ended up being out of work for like nine months. And tell me what nine months is like. Is that a long time in Hollywood or is that, I mean, is it a long time for you? Does that seem like it drags on and on? Because I mean, in the in the large scale of things, looking back at nine months, you might be like, oh, that's, I mean, I can tell you've been pregnant before. Nine months is a long <laughs> time. What, so what's that nine months like for you? Are you cold emailing again or what do you go back to doing? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think like 
It's so interesting that you say that because nine months, it depends what you're doing in those nine months. It could be different for everybody. For me, it was like the worst nine months of my life. But it was really because of how I internalized what was happening. And that's something that I teach my clients because I... I felt unworthy, like I thought there was something wrong with me, you know, that I couldn't get another job. Like I just completely internalized it and thought there was something wrong with me. And I was like, why am I being punished? Like I just felt awful. And it was the stories that I was telling myself about what it means. And I think nine months when you're first starting out in Hollywood, totally freaking normal. You know, it's like not abnormal at all. Um, But I just didn't have, you know, the connections yet to, to have steady work. The thing that was really hard about it, too, is that it was when the economy crashed. So I couldn't even get a waitressing job. So I was like trying, you know, like, and I was just living off of what I had saved. And my parents ended up having to help me pay rent. I mean, it was just really awful. Um, You know, I mean, it was so bad for so many people with the economy like that in the United States. Okay, so you've got like a crushing nine months. And are you letting that story get in the way of like you going out and emailing and making connections during that time? Or are you kind of doing that despite the story? Yes and no. I think I was definitely still like I never stopped putting myself out there. Um, I never stopped emailing. I never stopped making connections. It wasn't until um, my cousin out here, my dad's cousin, told me this story where the moral of the story was like, it's okay to ask for help. It was like more the financial part that was so crippling and to not, you know, be making any money. And so I would like lock myself in my bedroom and watch Friends all day because my roommate at the time had the whole series on DVD and I couldn't, like if I left the house, I would have to spend money. I couldn't spend money on gas. I couldn't spend, you know, like I couldn't leave. And so, um, So it was very crippling, but I never really, I never stopped cold emailing and doing all of that. Um, But I didn't do extra things because I was really depressed. And so like my mom would suggest things and I would just shoot it down. Like, no, that's not going to work. Or I'm not going to, you know, like I was, I was totally depressed and just, I wouldn't, I wasn't open to other things. Well, and I think it's also a time, especially when you're in your mid-20s, where you're trying to convince ev- yourself and everyone that, like, I can do this without my parents. Mm, like, I'm so, so I'm true. an adult. I'm out there. I don't need your help. I don't need your advice. And it's it's really hard to swallow your pride at that age, I think. Like, now I'm like, hey, whoever wants to help me, like, help <laughs> me. I'm in my, like, you know, early to mid-30s, and I'll take whatever you can help me with. But when you're 25, you have this pride about... That you, you know, all of a sudden you've been like released on the world and you should just be like completely able to do it all on your own. And that's something even in myself, I feel like I would do differently. I mean, or maybe that's the way you learn. No, that's a really good point. You have a really good point. I think that was part of it. What's the job that brings you out of the nine months of? um, I got a waitressing job. And a week into the waitressing job, I got a call from a TV show. So I had told like a friend of mine that I had made from the first show, I told her that I was really struggling. And she had heard of Glee that was looking for an art PA. So she recommended me and and they called me to fill in temporarily for like a couple days. And I was and I told I was just super honest with the art director and I said, you have no idea how badly I want to say yes to you. Like, I 100% want to come work for you. But I've been unemployed for almost nine months, and I just got a waitressing job a week ago. I can't quit it for just a couple days of work. 
Like if something longer, I will be there in a heartbeat, but I don't think I can take that risk right now. Like I just, I need, you know, it was just too long of a stint of no money coming in. So um, he was super understanding and nice and called me back a month later and was like, we need someone now for the rest of the season. Um, And so I quit the waitressing job after a month and went to work on Glee. At the time, I'm assuming you don't know what a powerhouse Glee is going to be. And then it kind of, or did you know? I mean, I mean, obviously, I'm sure Ryan Murphy had some background behind him that you had some idea. It wasn't Ryan Murphy. It was that I came on in the first season, but towards the end of the first season. Oh, you know what it was? I think they released the pilot episode early, like before the season was done. And so there was already a lot of buzz. And I, be, you know, growing up doing theater and singing, I like, all, you know, all my friends back home, I mean, this was the show. <laughs> and I assume that without, you know, other than uh, a couple three to four month breaks between jobs, you've, you worked, you know, for the time that you were a graphic designer on, sh- on shows like that, you, you worked ever since. Yes. I mean, until obviously until you used to decide to move into coaching, but then you just like kind of get rolling, right? Yeah, yeah. I still do. I like to keep my IMDb current. So I still do pilots every year. I still do like little projects. I just did a commercial last week. So I still do things here and there when they let me work from home. Okay, so just give me a sense, maybe using Glee as an example, or can you pick another show, but something that you've designed for a show that you're really proud of, like something that you really remember designing that, you know, made it on air that was like, you were like, yes, I did that. The Glee stuff was fun. Like, I really liked working on Glee because it felt like every episode was something so different. For example, I've also worked on a cop show. And on a cop show, it's very boring, like, artistically in terms of graphics. Like, I'm just designing every week, like, signs in a prison. You know what I mean? Like, it, <laughs> like a gray box with text on it. And so Glee... Um, was really fun. And and so Glee, I started as an assistant. And then once I got into the union, they, they brought me back as a graphic designer. So I was on seasons one, two, and then five and six. And so five and six, I did some really cool things. Like there was a whole storyline about Rachel Berry's character getting her own reality show. And I designed like the huge poster for her reality show. And it was big. Like they put it on the side of the soundstage. And then she had like this whole Broadway career. And I designed the billboard, you know, for the Broadway show. And then these magazine covers that she was on that were framed in her house. Um, So, you know, like everything about the reality show was just really fun. We got to do a variety magazine cover that she was on. Um, So... Yeah, really fun, cool stuff. That's awesome. Can you kind of like name drop any other stuff you worked on that you're really proud of? Um, I feel like the shows that I worked on that people have heard of, because I've done a lot of first seasons, (laughs) I've done a lot of things that maybe didn't go, but I feel like um, I did a couple for Entourage. I did like one or two episodes of The Office. Um, And then I'm like trying to think. I've worked on like 39 shows or something at this point. Recently, I was on Top Chef. How do you move from that? Like, what's the moment where you're like, okay, this is great working full-time in graphic design, but I want to start helping people. Is there kind of a shift that you can remember where that happened, where coaching kind of was on your radar? Yeah. I mean, I, there were like two moments and then also it happened slowly. So it was like an organic thing, but I also had two moments. I think when I first moved to LA, my cousin, my dad's cousin who lives out here, who I had never met her before. Or maybe I met her once at a funeral, Um, but I didn't really know her. Um, And she lives out here and she was a coach. And she was like, 
I think you should read this book called The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. Um, when I was when I moved to LA. So when I first moved to LA, I read that book and it was my very first self-help book ever. It really, I think it really helped me break into Hollywood so quickly. I actually coincidentally just emailed him a success story testimonial. Um, And when I read that book, I remember having a thought of, oh my gosh, this stuff is amazing. I I should be like sharing this with people my age, you know, because it was written like by an older man. And I was like, oh, I should make this like more accessible for the younger generation. And so that seed was planted. And then over the years, before I even was an entrepreneur, I went to these like seminars um, by this guy, James Malinchak, who actually also worked with Jack Camfield. And he was teaching people who wanted to be authors and speakers. And I went to like, and he, and he did this like big, huge four day event in LA, like twice a year for free. And there were like a couple hundred people that would attend. And I went eight times. And looking at the same seminar. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was like four days and it was so much content. And like, I wrote my first LA bound book after one of them. I mean, like, I just, I just like really do. And it's so interesting to like, look back, like I was going to these while I was a graphic designer. So the seed was planted and I was just following my curiosity as Elizabeth Gilbert says, you know, I was just going towards what I was interested in, but the real moment happened one day when I was working, I was working on a show called the Fosters. And we were filming at Warner Brothers and I was in this little bungalow at Warner Brothers and I had some downtime in between projects. And so I was watching Oprah's Super Soul Sunday show and she was interviewing Jack Canfield. And I just felt my eyes well up with tears as I was watching Jack talk. It was like this overwhelming, oh my God, I'm supposed to be helping people. Like, what are you doing right now? Doing these graph, like you, you're supposed to be helping people. And it, it was just one of those like overwhelming aha moments where it was just a conversation, you know, that I was watching. So what I really like about the coaching you do is that it's not just actors. I think if you think of, you know, someone called the Hollywood success coach, your first idea is like, oh, it's just, she's an actor, a coach for actors. But what I thought was really interesting about your story is that you come from graphic design and you coach people not just in acting. Like you're coaching people who work on the crew or you're posting, you know, coaching the personal assistants. I think it's so different from what might be expected. Like when I saw your title, I and and read more about it. I really appreciated that. Like someone who's not just kind of like in Hollywood trying to help actors be actors, but you're working with the people like you who came to Hollywood who wanted to do graphic design or wanted to work behind the scenes. Like it's not it's not just, you know, let's just work with actors. It's kind of bringing that community into it, right? Like let's work with everybody who's who's trying to make it work in this one city. Yeah, I mean to me, that really excites me about my business because there are already a lot of coaches for actors. Um, not necessarily a lot of coaches that do what I do for actors, but there's just a lot of coaches for actors in the industry. All the other people have nobody, you know? And so it makes me so happy to provide this resource for all of these other people, you know, getting to work with writers and directors and like, there's so many cool things about it. It's like one, when I do like, for example, I have a membership there's people that work in all different parts of the craft and like they can collaborate, they can help each other, they can make recommendations, like people have gotten each other jobs, you know. So that part is really cool. 
Um, And then the other part that's fascinating is that all of the problems are the same. Like, the same for every because it's it's all about the internal struggles and the rejection and you know putting yourself out there and really thinking of it as a business and doing these things that are uncomfortable I mean it's real I mean the crafts are all different and you can go study the craft from people that teach the craft but seriously like the strategy and the mindset like the it's all the same for everybody. It's amazing to have a group coaching call where like a director and an actor and an editor are all struggling with the same thing. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? It's really just like the human condition. It doesn't necessarily have to do anything with the specific industry, right? Totally. I mean, like I will say like I feel like artists, although... It's, it's really just being a human. But I think artists in particular, you know, have shared struggles. Like it's a lot of vulnerability and a lot of like your self-worth is in question every day. And, you know, it's um, a lot of that kind of stuff. But yeah. Okay. I want to ask you a question and I hope you're not offended by this. It's just a question I've always had about coaching. Coaching, the word coach for some people, for some reason is super triggering like this idea and I think maybe it's because you can call yourself a coach and not really have the peace behind it like you could work in an industry for like a year and then be like oh I'm a I'm now I'm a coach and I think everyone in their friend and their brother has like a friend who you know wasn't doing well doing what they're doing so they shifted to coaching and I think your story is really different you kind of like mastered like you're the proof is in the pudding you did it you worked in it for full time for several years and then you know you kind of have this shift but what do you get that sense for people sometimes that like coaching the word coach is like a little bit of a trigger word? And and why do you think that is? That's a real I think this is a great conversation and I'm like not offended at all. <laughs> I'm like, I'm here for all the conversations. I think it's a really interesting conversation. I think that um, the trigger is always within ourselves, right? It's, it's, it's just like if, if someone is triggered by the term coach, like it doesn't offend me because it's not about me, it's about them. And so I think the question would be like, well, what about it triggers you? And I think like, you know, I've had some clients that are embarrassed to tell their friends that they work with me, you know, like, and and that triggers me sometimes because I'm like, dude, word of mouth will help me get more clients. Like, what do you, you know? And then they're like, they're a little embarrassed to say that like they need help. And I don't see it that way. Like I see it as like, athletes in their prime, like NFL athletes and NBA athletes, like athletes at their top of their game. Do you know how many freaking coaches they have? You know, and so I think, and Olymp- like a people, people that perform in the Olympics. Um, so I think that high, I think that high performers in all areas work with people to get better at like, as in to get the edge, not as in I'm not good enough, so I need a coach. Like, to me, it's like the edge because I think we can all do things on our own. But what I've learned with coaching for myself too, like when I've had coaches, is that it's like we have blind spots. We have areas where we can improve, just like a personal trainer. Um, So, yeah, so I, I think the trigger is more like internal of like what about it triggers you. Well, and just like in any business, I think a lot of people don't recognize this idea of like, you have to spend money to start making money. There's very few businesses where you don't have to spend money to start making money, right? And maybe that'll lead into a question I have about something I've heard you say in a lot of different forms about Hollywood is that being in Hollywood is a business. If you're an actor, if you're a writer, if you're a director, 
it's a business. Can you give me a sense of kind of what you tell your clients about that? Like the kind of business, I mean, obviously it's internal, but also talking about like, you know, what they have to do to think of themselves more as a business than just as like, I'm an artist moving here and, you know, jobs should just appear. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two sides of it. I mean, one is like, yes, you're an artist, but you're essentially also a product that you're selling. And so a product that you're selling needs marketing. You need like, if you are just, if you're an actor and you're just focused on the craft and you're just acting, you're like in this little bubble where you're just living a hobby. But if you want it to be a career where you're getting a paycheck and you're making money because of it, you need to invest into it. You need to do things like marketing. You're going to have to learn accounting, get a tax accountant who deals with this. Like some people end up forming LLCs when they become really big actors so that their paychecks are going to the LLC and then they pay themselves a cut of it. You know, there's all these business terms. And then from an investment standpoint, I teach that there are three types of investments that every business makes, the same for an actor, writer, director, anyone. The first are startup costs. So any kind of business, you need startup costs, right? So think about like, I would say like, think about Starbucks starting up, you know, like they need coffee and they need equipment and, you know, they, they need, a, you know, um, a brick and mortar, like actual location. For an actor, that might be a headshot. You know, that might be a real, um, that might be acting classes, you know, things that you need to start your business up and running. Um, and then the second is maintenance costs. So like a real estate agent might need to renew their license every four years. An actor might need to maintain their hair color or a gym membership, you know, maintain their body because their body is, you know, their product. Um, and, you know, same like classes can be maintenance too, like maintaining your level of craft. And then the third is up-level costs. So like investing in a way that's going to help you get to that next level. So of course, for me, that's coaching, but it could be like a publicist. You know, it could be so many different things. Like, I mean, for an online business, it could be something like advertising, Facebook advertising. Um, there's so many different ways that you can do it. But when you start to look at those three types of costs, you know, investments that it needs to get your business up and running and to maintain it and up-level it, it like, I know it's not what artists want to do because artists are artists. Like, artists are stars. They're not the business person necessarily. Um, although, lots of them say they want their own production company someday. So this is a good time to start <laughs> wearing that hat. But, you know, I really think it's important to to learn this stuff to get out of the hobby and into the career. For sure. Uh, do you find working with clients that, uh, that you know, once you get into it, it's the same story they're telling themselves that's holding them back? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And what's, what is that story? I mean, I will say so much of it comes down to self-worth, like worthiness and deservedness. Like those are the two most common themes that are underneath all of the other stuff that they bring me, you know? Um, and so when they aren't taking risks or they're not putting themselves out there or they're procrastinating, like it usually comes down to. I don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I'm worthy. And that's like the underneath deeper cause that, you know, the surfacey symptoms are on top of. Just some brass tacks. And I know we're going over, but I'm really super interested in this. Um, how many clients do you have at once? And, and second to that, 
are you now with your life, with your, um, success coaching business? Like, have you replaced what you kind of left? I know you're still doing some of it, but like left the day to day graphic design as far as income goes. Yes. I hit six figures two years ago. So I think in 2017, the middle of 2017 is when I left, I was on Superstore and I was working that full time and I left to do my business full time, like July, 2017. So ever since then I've been full time um, and I have replaced my income. So um, yes. And in terms of how many clients I have, um, I, I don't do as much one-on-one work. Um, It was getting very repetitive for me. And so I've shifted into like, I have this membership that's, it's intimate. Like there's only 20 some people in it. And it's, it's so, it's a family. It's like this really great family. Um, And I have courses and trainings and other things that I've been putting out, but it's interesting because this year I'm sort of, I'm figuring out, but I'm kind of shifting away from this stereotypical online business um, because it's been amazing and I've loved it, but I feel like I'm ready for something new that's next. So, um, I'm writing a book where I'm like putting all of my systems that I've created that have worked for all of my clients and putting it into a book. Um, and I'm expanding my speaking career. Like, I think I'm missing being on stage. Like I was when I was younger, like I, you know, I might be developing a TV show off of the book. Like, I think I'm feeling like I want to be helping people in a bigger in a bigger way. Um, so I'm shifting away a little bit from some of the stereotypical online coachy business things. Um, still doing some of it to make money in the meantime. But uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm following my joy and trying to, you know, find what lights me up on a daily basis. Well, I'm excited to see where you go now that I'm like in the Hollywood success club and I'm you're in your fan club. Um, Last question, because I know I went way over. Um, if you were to give advice to, you know, 24-year-old you or, you know, 19-year-old someone else looking at your career so far about, you know, what you've learned along the way, what you do differently or like what, you know, what kind of advice you have for that person, what would you say if someone asked you for advice now? Not maybe necessarily about moving to LA. I mean, if you can, you can take it in that direction if you want. But what's your kind of general career advice that you would you would kind of dole out now? It's hard to narrow it down to just one or two things. Um, I think like number one, it all comes down to your belief in what is possible, and if you can start to expand and even sort of challenge your own beliefs about what's possible. Like I would challenge you to think even bigger, you know, like I have this dream of buying a $15 million house in LA. Like that's big. You know what I mean? It's like, I challenge you to go as big as you possibly can, not just in terms of your dream, but in terms of believing that it's possible. And then the other thing I would say is to really pay attention to the stories that you tell yourself about it and along the way, like about, you know, your potential to, to achieve it because so much of our success is dependent upon the stories that we tell ourselves and the conversation we have about ourselves. I mean, if I talk to an actor who's doing really well, has been in lots of TV shows, and then I talk to an actor who hasn't really booked anything yet, it's a completely night and day different conversation in terms of confidence and what they believe in. And the stories that they, you know, like, I feel like 
when people are struggling, they get very hung up on the obstacles and the rejection. And the people that are succeeding, they don't do that. They don't get hung up on those things. They happen, but they don't create a whole narrative about what it means. They just, they keep going. I love that. I think that's such good advice and such different advice, I think, from what a lot of people say. And so I, I so appreciate that about maybe it's your, your Hollywood background that gets you there, but it's such, it's really, really good advice. So Erica, thank you for doing this. So nice to virtually meet you from, you know, East coast, Canada to West coast, Pacific coast, United States. Um, and I really am excited to watch, uh, you know, I, when your book comes out and I'd love to hear you speak someday. And so I appreciate you doing this with me. I really do. Oh, thank you so, so much. Seriously, it is such an honor to be on here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and anyone listening, come check me out. Come follow me on Instagram at Hollywood Success Coach. And anywhere else people should find you that we need to know about or just wait for the book, like follow on Instagram, wait for the book. On my website, HollywoodSuccessCoach.com, there's a wait list for the book. And if you could get on that, that would be amazing because I am seeking out agents and publishers. And so the more people I can get on that wait list. Awesome. Everyone go wait for the book. 